All right, let's pray and uh, we'll get started today. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, we look for your help today. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we're desperate in need of you. We thank you for our mediator. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his, his priestly role. Thank you for his kingly role. Thank you that he prophesies to us the truth and tells us the truth about who you are and what you've done. Father, bless our time. Lord, guide us, lead us into truth. Keep us from error. And uh, help us, Lord, to discern your word today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, uh, I wanted to um, start a new topic today and what is called uh, the threefold office of Christ. If you listen to any Christian rap lately, you probably know what that is already, right? All the rappers like to rap this. It's good, it's good, it's good. Tell us, Kada, what are the threefold office of Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. That's right. Man, you say that so well. <laughs> Prophet, priest, and king. That's right. In other words, this is who Jesus is. This is his identity. And, uh, you know, the first time that, remember a while back, I talked about Calvin. And I talked about how Calvin was really a seminal uh, theologian in the church. That based on, based on the writings of Calvin, preceded all these systematic theologies, including... Uh, the type of systematics you're going to get today, like Wayne Grudem and Burkhoff and stuff like that, really they take their cue from Calvin. He's really the plumb line, if you would, of all theology preceding the Reformation. Um, well, this actual this description of Christ actually goes back to John Calvin. Calvin is the originator of this title. Let me tell you the way that he put it. This is when he first contrived of it. He says... He says, therefore, that faith that may be found in Christ, a solid ground of salvation, so rest in him, we must set out with this principle, that the office which he received from the Father consists of three parts. For he, ha for he was appointed both prophet, king, and priest. And now we say prophet, priest, and king, because it's just easier to say it that way. But uh, Calvin saw... Uh, right away, the need to bring out these categories in order to rightly understand what it is that the Father had sent the Son to do. Now, you think about Christmas, right? We're all getting ready to celebrate Christmas. It's our favorite time of the year for some. For others, it's a very depressing time. But um, we won't get into that. It's a whole other class. But uh, it, it is Christmas, nevertheless, and many, you know, we preach a Christmas sermon every year here at Heritage Grace, just reminding us of the simple fact that God gave his son. And when Christ came and when Christ was born, who was it that was born? Well, the one who was born was the prophet, priest, and king of God. That's who was born. That, that was his identity when he came. And you remember last week we talked about the states of Christ, we talked about Christ in his state of, of, of humility as he came to, to this world. And then we talked about his state of exaltation as he returned back to glory through the ascension. And these uh, offices, this threefold office, has to do with that very thing. We can see his, primarily we can see his office of priest and prophet in his 
humility, in his humility as he came, and then his kingly office supremely in his exaltation. Okay? His exaltation. Um, because now, having been exalted to the right hand of God, he has ascended to the throne of David, he has ascended to the right hand of God, and now he reigns in majesty on high. He reigns now, right? Um, when we talk about the, king, the kingship of Christ, uh, we're talking about the fact that uh, Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated. It is already here, in a sense, spiritually. Uh, but it also will come in consummate form. You all know what I mean by that? The consummation, the end of all things, the end of the age. When Christ returns, then he will usher in the fullness of his kingdom, where he will presently be reigning. Uh, right now, he is spiritually reigning in our hearts by faith. Uh, but all of that has to do with the prophet, priest, and king description of Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe we can begin by understanding why do we need a prophet, priest, and king? Well, this goes back to a very critical passage of Scripture. 1 Timothy, please. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Really setting forth, then, the, the nature and the necessity of Christ as our mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5. It says here, very plainly, There is one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, very interesting, but that as his role as mediator, this is what we have. We have uh, as the mediator a prophet. Now, let me ask you this question. You know, understanding that Christ represents us to God and, God, and he represents God to us, think of that when I ask you, uh, in terms of his prophethood, what aspect of that mediator role does that fulfill? As a prophet, does he represent the people to God? No. no. He represents God to the people, mainly through the prophetic word, through the prophecies that he gave, through his speaking ministry, his preaching ministry. He came to bring God to us. What does John say in 1 John? What is it? 1 John uh, 17, right? Uh, the law was given through Moses, but grace and through but grace and truth, no but, grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Right? So the truth of God's word came in the ministry of his prophethood. What about his priestly role? Does in as a priest, does he bring God to us? No. He brings us to God, right? As a priest. He intercedes for us, right? He makes sacrifices for us on our behalf to God. And so he, he comes and he represents God, he represents the people of God to God as a priest, as he stands as our priestly mediator. And then as a king, we can say he definitely, as a king, he brings God to us and that he brings God's sovereign rule, his sovereign reign. Uh, but notice this verse here. There is one God, but there is one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What an amazing description of Jesus Christ here, right? Um, he is called a man, no question about it. Clearly, Paul is saying Jesus is a man, the man, Christ Jesus. Yet, in order to fulfill and in order to execute all these offices, 
this requires that he be that he be more than a mere man, right? That he be more than a mere man. He is not just the man Jesus, but notice he is also the man Christ Jesus. And so, by virtue of being Christ, we understand that he is the divine Messiah, who is also the man Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, who came to intercede on our behalf, who can reveal the mind of God to his people and who will govern and rule over his people. So what I want to do today is I just want to focus uh, mainly, you guys see a eraser back there? Feel free to grab me one. Uh, but I just want to focus mainly today on his role as prophet. So we're going to look um, at his, his role as a prophet today. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Thank you, sir. Deuteronomy 18. Because we want to set up the prophetic ministry of Christ based on the expectation that was set forth, uh, um, set forth in the Old Testament about Christ. And there, of course, we're talking about this ancient prophecy that is made of Christ. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up... Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Um, now, very interesting, right? Um so we have this incredible prophecy here by Moses of a coming prophet, and I don't think it's by surprise. I've pointed this out to many of you before, but turn to Deuteronomy 34, last chapter of Deuteronomy, right? Last chapter of Deuteronomy. And to me, it is curious that Deuteronomy should end in this way. Um, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. This is the way that Deuteronomy ends closes. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel, watch this, like Moses. And that's exactly what the prophecy of Moses said. It says, God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me, right? So um, here, Deuteronomy is, is saying, that prophet never came. He never arrived on the scene. And so you leave off reading the book of Deuteronomy expecting that prophet saying, where is he? He never showed up, right? So Deuteronomy points you forward to whatever it is that God was going to do redemptively in his people. Calvin makes a, a big deal out of this passage. Uh, Calvin says this, and the reason I'm quoting Calvin, remember, is because for some of you that just got here, uh, remain, remember that uh, it was Calvin who first developed the title of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And Calvin says, God, by supplying an uninterrupted succession of prophets, never left his people destitute of useful doctrine, such as might suffice for salvation. Yet the minds of believers were always impressed with the conviction that the full light of understanding was to be expected only at the advent of the Messiah. And so from all the way ages past, believers have been uh, uh, hoping in, and they understood that the, the fullness 
of God's light, God's revelation, was reserved for the advent of the Messiah. Again, kind of getting back to something we said last week in Sunday school in terms of how much did the prophets know, right? We always kind of, did they really know that prophecy? When you read a prophecy, let's say, um, in the New Testament, and it's a prophecy, oh, I don't know, somebody think of a prophecy in the New Testament, an obscure one, too. Um, I don't know, out of Egypt I've called my son, right? That is, quote, that's in, uh, where's that at? Matthew chapter, uh, I'm going to say it's Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and that's quoting Hosea 11, right? And so when you read Hosea 11, you wonder, did Hosea know what he was talking about, that one day that passage would somehow be applied to Jesus? Of course, he didn't know the name Jesus, so let's just eliminate that right away. Hosea did not know the name Jesus, if that would be the name of the Messiah. But did he see that messianically? You know, it's just interesting. Um, and I would say we, we can't rule out all the time that, no, they didn't know. I think they know more than we give them credit for. But uh, in terms of this prophet of Deuteronomy, uh, let's go to John chapter 1, just to show you that built into the way that God developed the history of his people, the history of his people is such that they were expecting the prophetic ministry of Jesus. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, when John the Baptist begins baptizing, what, do the, what does the delegation from the Pharisees say? Are you Elijah? I am not. And then they say, are you the prophet? Articular prophet. Articular means the prophet. It means that this is a specific prophet that they're talking about here. Are you the prophet? And so that shows you right there that they were looking for and they were expecting a certain prophet, which I think is just, uh, just remarkable. Um, yeah, ha, ha prophetize. I just had to look at the Greek really quick because I didn't want to say something was articular. When it's articular, it just means it has the, it has the uh, article in front of it, the, which makes it a bit more specific. So ha prophetes, the prophet, right? So this is a, a technical term for the long-awaited messianic figure who will have the role of a prophet as well. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, um, you see that the people identified Jesus as a prophet. He was called a prophet. I'm just throw some verses out. But uh, in Matthew 21 as well, Matthew 21, 11, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So they were identifying Jesus as a prophet. Some people saw him as a prophet, not knowing if he was the prophet. So you have both. Okay, you have both. Uh, even the Samaritans. They had this messianic expectation, right? The woman at the well said, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will declare to us all things. Even she understood the prophetic ministry of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. Now turn to Acts chapter 3, because it is not until then that you really have the full uh, implications of this prophecy in Deuteronomy. So, two real critical passages here today, okay? Deuteronomy 18, and then Acts 3, 22. 
Acts chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Why? Because it is here that the apostles directly attribute what happened in Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus. And they saw that after Jesus came, that prophecy was fulfilled. Incredible. So who wants to read for us? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, Robert, uh, verses 22 to 24, please. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your, your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. That is such a remarkable <laughs> a passage of scripture. You remember teaching this, mm-hmm. Chris? This is such a remarkable scripture because it just reinforces what Jesus himself taught them on the road to Emmaus, you remember? That's why the whole uh, TEC conference that we're doing at our church exists. It exists because it's built on the conviction that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, speaking of Jesus, prophesying of Jesus. And here you have Peter saying, look, it says, from, it says um, from Samuel and his successors, meaning that Samuel was the beginning of the prophets, and then after Samuel, every other prophet, including the school of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, all of the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, also announced these days. When? What, what days? The days in which the Deuteronomy 18 prophet would come. The one that God had promised one that God had promised. So this is kind of how we see uh, Jesus' prophetic ministry. And um, let's go to a a familiar place, Hebrews chapter (laughs) 1. It's almost, I don't want to say this, but you're going to be so sick of Hebrews by the time we're done. (laughs) Just Hebrews, but you can't say that. You can't be sick of Hebrews. Hopefully you'll be more in love with Hebrews than ever. Because you're, you're going to understand it. I was, you know, I was studying the other night, and uh, surprise, surprise, and uh, I just couldn't get out of Hebrew. I was just reading intensely because some of the, the language and the imagery of Jesus as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, and I, just, I was fascinated. I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to reiterate what I said in one of my sermons. I, hope you, I don't know if you remember me saying this, but if Hebrews is indeed a sermon, I think it is the greatest sermon ever preached. I think it really is. And uh, how fitting of God that the greatest sermon ever preached wouldn't even have a, we wouldn't even know who it is. You know? Can't even give the person credit for it. Because it doesn't matter. God gets the credit. That's the way all preaching ministries should be. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Verse 1, how does God speak? How does God speak in verse 1? In the prophets, right? And then the prophets in many ways, right? Uh, through visions and dreams and oracles and and all of these things, right? But in the prophets. And so how does he speak now? We could say, in the prophet Jesus. <laughs> right? 
in these last days he has spoken to us in his son who he appointed as the heir oh this is remarkable watch this he has appointed heir of all things now what does that speak to yeah prophet priest and king right so heir of all things that refers to his kingship and then keep going through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact <coughs> representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's all kingly talk as well. He, watch this, when he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high. So when he made purification of sins and sat down, what does that speak of? That's right. Prophet, priest. We already said prophet. That's... Verse 1, verse, no, verse 2. And now, prophet, priest, making purification for sins, and king, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But also sitting down also speaks of his, of his priestly ministry, remember? He sat down because atonement had been made. And unlike um, all the past priests, they would never sit after making atonement because the work was never finished. Right? But Jesus' work, having been completed, having been finished, he is able to sit down. It speaks of the, uh, the sufficiency of his atonement. Right? The sufficiency of his atonement. He, Jesus is so confident in his atoning work that he takes his rest. He can rest. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, as a prophet, he also came in the pattern of the prophets. Now, I want to point out to you a few things here, that in the pattern of the prophets, uh, Jesus came, number one, by being set apart. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4, a fascinating passage of Scripture. I, I, um, I want to encourage you to pick up a good commentary and to read uh, along and to, to study it with Luke chapter 4. Let's say, uh, what's a good commentary on the Gospel of Luke? What's that? Daryl Bach. Bach. It's very advanced, very technical, maybe too technical for some people, but it's, that's a good one. I, I'm thinking of a different commentary uh, by Joel Green. So if you want to jot it down or make a mental note of it. But uh, there's a commentary by Joel Green, and it's in the... Um, NICNT commentary set, the New International Commentary of the New Testament set. Okay, so um, Joel B. Green is his name, and he has a wonderful commentary on Luke. Um, I, can't, I can't speak for everything Joel Green has ever written, but that I've spent a lot of time in that commentary on Luke, and it's fascinating. But I would tell you, take this portion of Scripture, Luke chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, and just study it. Take a pencil and a paper and understand just the implications of what's going on here. Just fascinating. Fascinating. What did I say? 17, 18. Okay. It says here, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, which he is quoting Isaiah 61. Verses 1 and 2. 
And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Uh, Very interesting there. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That this is his ministry. So his prophetic ministry begins by being anointed, by being anointed, which is a... Um, what is anointing for? When someone was anointed by God, say a king, say a, um, oh, I don't know, say a priest, Aaron, right? When he was anointed with oil, what did it represent? It was set aside. It was what now? Set aside. Set aside. That's right. He was consecrated, right? For that purpose, to fulfill that task, um, So kings are anointed. Priests were anointed. Also prophets are anointed. 1 Kings 19.16, you see prophets being anointed by God for a purpose. And so same thing here. Jesus is being anointed by God for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Um, Yes, sir? But also... Didn't uh, I bring coffee in here? Fulfill the purpose of, of a visible representation of, of what's happening too, like as a way for other people to see. Um, starting. Okay, just maybe to inaugurate his prophetic ministry. Right. I mean, yeah, just as a as a, as a sign. Yeah, as other people to see that it's now starting. You're now the king. Yeah. You're now the prophet. In a similar way. Good of, point. Of baptism being a, a way for other people to see now right now your ministry is starting so to speak as a christian yeah. it's a great point because uh luke so chapter this, four this the visible nature of the of the anointing that would happen. well that's a good point because my you know my in my bible in verse 14 my subheading says uh jesus's public ministry which means he thank you which means he's going to begin his public ministry you know what I mean? So that's a good point. Yeah, it initiates him into ministry. And uh, boy, I tell you what, this is a fascinating chapter. Let's, let's just stay right here. I mean, this is enough. This is, this is so good right here. Um, so, so we see that he is consecrated for this ministry. And think of the provocative nature of what is taking place here, okay? He sat down, and uh, where is that verse? Verse 22, you see this? Right after he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing... I really don't think they understood what was going on. Look at uh, verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And th- this, is, this is Luke's way of saying they were enamored with his words. They were enamored with what he was saying. They were, they were tripping They were like, what is this guy? This is incredible. We have never heard anybody get up here, grab a scroll of Isaiah and say, I have been anointed. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right? And then then he says to them, oh, excuse me, after they say that, they wonder, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, it's Jesus. We know Jesus. Little Jesus. Running around the village. We know him. Right? The carpenter's son. No big deal. Right? And Jesus said, 
No doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then he goes on to talk about no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. And then he talks about how Elijah only, um, he only healed, um, where's that at? Verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Samarian and all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. What was the implication of what Jesus was saying? He is saying that he's prophesying here. He's saying that even though now they are standing in awe of his gracious words, in a very short order, right, they will be telling him, physician, heal yourself, which is what's a, a prophecy of what they would tell him on the cross. Let him come down. He healed others. Let him heal himself. Right? These same people that will, uh, in just a few chapters, shout, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Just another chapter later are crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. <laughs> so Jesus knew that these people, uh, that they're, their amazement at his manner of preaching was not rooted in genuine faith in him. They were not trusting in him. Um, the second thing, um, not only is Jesus consecrated like the other prophets, he had a ministry like the other prophets, but he, was also, he also came in the pattern of the prophets in that he was sent to cry down the sins of the people. Turn to Amos. Boy, that's what we need is little Amos in our life. Huh? Uh, Amos is a, Amos is just a ferocious prophet. He's just uh, wonderful, wonderful. You know, Amos said, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. You know, I don't come from good prophetic stock. Right? He was a shepherd of where? Oh, boy, if you guys get this, you, you know the Bible better than me. Huh? Wow! Look at that! Shepherd of Tekoa. Man, I, I drew a blank, so thank you. <laughs> he was a shepherd of Tekoa. He's just a shepherd boy. And God calls this little shepherd boy, Amos, to go prophesy to the whole country. <laughs> to stand in the gap. Right? Uneducated, untrained, unimportant, insignificant. Right? Nobody knows him. He has no, you know, you, you get the point. Chapter 3, verse 14, just an example. Somebody read that for me. Verses 14 to 15. Uh, somebody, somebody there already? Amos 4? Or excuse me, Amos 3? 14 to 15? Chris, go ahead. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, 
declares the Lord. Yeah, he goes on in this prophecy to call the women of Israel cows. <laughs> this is not a seeker-sensitive prophet. <laughs> Uh, this was imagery. He was. He, how, how do you recover from that? It it was meant to be insulting, in the most prophetic and in the most sacred way, because these women had become so uh, spiritually lazy and materialistic, right? They were living for their padded houses. They were living for their summer house. They were living for their houses of ivory. They were living, they were living high on the hog, so to speak, right? And so what was their crime? That they were wealthy? No. Their crime was that they, they did not honor God. And you know that because he says, I will punish the altars of Bethel. Now, we know that Bethel is an outpost of Israel where the children of Israel uh, put false altars that God did not command them to build so that people that didn't want to travel all the way to Jerusalem could just go to Bethel, kind of a shortcut, right? Drive by Christianity, right? Not the full commitment. And eventually, the altars of Bethel became completely, um, what's the word? Syncretistic. Do you know what I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Blending, Blending, right. Synchronizing paganism with biblical religion, right? That it became undiscernible. It became, the the, the cult of Israel became so compromised that you couldn't pick out the true religion from the false religion anymore. You see this in Hosea, Hosea chapter 2. The people are so confused, they're calling Yahweh Baal. Bali says they will no longer call me Bali, right? So this is how bad it got. Jesus came in the same tone. Let me read you a few verses. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, it says, He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, the prophetic ministry of Jesus included that people had to recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Isn't that hard to convince people of today? You are spiritually bankrupt. Oh, no, 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 no. I go to church. Oh, no, no, no. no. I was raised in a Christian home. I was open air preaching once. I forgot where. A gentleman walked by and he said, my son is a minister. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was it? Yeah. So <laughs> uh, maybe it's a bit much to judge to read into that, but what I read into that was, you know, get off my back. I got it covered. The spiritual thing, I've got it down. You know, my son is a minister. I'll be okay. Hi, hi, hi. How do we show people you're spiritually bankrupt? How do you show people that? The law. The law. Their sin. Christ. Who is my mother and my, my brothers? You know, like, the matter of your family is Jesus hmm? said that about his own family. Don't trust in your lineage. What did Jesus, what does John say in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, right? Uh, he came to his own, his own did not receive them, but as many as received them, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, right? So born of the will, born of blood is referring to physical descendants, right? I don't care who's in your family. What about you? 
right? You're not going to stand. Your, your, your son, if he is a minister, is not going to be with you on the day of judgment, standing there interceding for you. You had better have the mediator, <laughs> right, interceding for you. Um, next point. Not only does it come crying down. Well, that wasn't really crying down. Let me, I got to hit a couple more. Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Think about that. When was the last time you saw a preacher, an evangelist? When was the last time you went to a giant crusade, right, and heard a pastor say to people, Woe to you! You have bookstores and Bibles and Bible software, and you have, you know, Lifeway, and, and you have 50,000 different translations to pick from. And, and, and if these things would have been for, provided for the people in Papua New Guinea, they would have repented long ago. Woe to you! This whole stadium is going to sink down into hell. <laughs> but think about it. When was the last time anybody spoke like Jesus up there? Right? Instead, we make our pithy little comments and, you know, our light little applications. And, you know, we, oh, we got to get a good joke in there to lighten people. What? Jesus isn't joking around. Jesus is weeping in the face of unbelief. I see that hand. I was just going to say Spiritually, they were dead. They were unresponsive. Their heart was hard. Their heart they had a heart of stone. They were they were they they could care less about their neighbor. They could care less about their fellow man. What does the Bible say? The mercies of the wicked are cruel. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just uh, going to add in. You know, yesterday a couple of us were speaking on a really difficult passages that we we tend to forget, and a lot of evangelicalism just has thrown out their Bible, um, and it was pointed out to me that in Malachi 2, it talks about how God says that he's going to rub, you know, refuse on the wicked's face. That's how much he detests the wicked, that your own waste I'm going to use against you. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, a lot of that, because it was spoken in the context of Israel, right, and their covenant breaking, when you read the prophets, that really is where these judgments are coming from. Now, what is that all rooted in? Where do all, where do all the descriptions that the prophets give, these dire descriptions, right, where does that all come from? I would, I, I, you know, I would tell you that it comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. That is where the blessings and the cursings of the covenant are laid out, and also Leviticus 26. 
Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, you have blessings and cursings for either covenant keeping or covenant breaking. If you, listen, if you keep the covenant of God, boy, just read that. Read that because you could be blessed by just reading that. God is going to bless Israel. Oh, they're going to dwell securely. He's going to bless their, their produce, their vegetation, their land. They're going to have safety from their enemies. They are going to be so blessed by God, right? But if they break the covenant, oh, wow, the cursings that are pronounced in those chapters are dire. It's going to get so bad in Israel at some point that women will resort to cannibalism from starvation. That, you want to talk about dire. God is promising that based on Israel's unfaithfulness, and man, the unfaithfulness that you find, you find it, for example, in, um, in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, you find a prophecy of the priesthood, the prophethood, everything had been corrupted and it was laid waste, and God sent an avenger to strike down the priests. I mean, it's just incredible. They had become so perverse and so immoral and so synchronized with Baalism and paganism that God basically said this people is undistinguishable. God basically said just kill them along with the, the enemies of God. I mean, that's how brutal it got at some point. So, uh, man, isn't the Old Testament great? We've got to get there. Anyway, we're in Hebrews. Can't complain. Last thing. i got two minutes. The last way that Jesus was like the prophets and, and follows the pattern, the prophetic pattern of the Old Testament. Somebody want to throw something out that I didn't mention? He was consecrated, right? He was consecrated like, uh, like the Old Testament prophets were. He cried down the sins of the people. What else? What else? He brought the good news. He didn't only cry down judgments, but he proclaimed yeah. that's right. salvation. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's part wonders. of it. Huh? Signs and wonders. He did signs and wonders. So there's a lot of things, really, we could... Holy, righteous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne Grudem wrote that he was called to suffer reproach for the message that he preached. And that's exactly right. I mean, we see that in Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11, men of whom the world is not worthy, right? The author of Hebrews says, time would fail me to speak of these men and talk about the prophets, how they were sawn in two and they were, they were, they were killed and, you know, everything else. Jesus suffered for the message that he preached, Right? Um, and so many people today are trying not to suffer for the message that we preach. Oh, we just adjust it as much as we need to, not to even offend people, let alone suffer for it. Right? So in that sense, we are way, way out of sync with Christ. Any final statements, questions, comments? Anyone? Anyone? No? There's so much. Few more. All, three are, all three offices are so vital yeah. uh, to our Christology, and that they're all so rich individually, put them all together, and it's mind blowing. Yeah, that's why I'm taking them one by one. Thank you. <laughs> so we'll be here for a little bit. All right, let's pray and before I get in trouble here. <clears throat> Father, thank you again, Lord, for uh, the truth of your word. Thank you for the threefold office of Christ, Lord. 
We have but scratched the surface of everything that Jesus has done for us as our great prophet. The truth that he speaks to us, the warnings that he gives us, the blessings that he promises us, but most of all, Lord, the, the gospel that he came to proclaim to us, to free us, to free the, the captives, Lord, and proclaim liberty to the captives. We were captive, and through that gospel we were freed. So, Lord, we thank you that Christ came to speak the truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen.